Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I am Brandy. And I'm Chris. And this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Thank you for being here, friends, for this week's episode, The Unsolved Murder of Deborah Sue Williamson, Part 1. Hey, Chris. Hey, Brandy. How are you? I'm doing ex- excellent. Good. Have we been gone a while? I feel like we haven't done this in a couple of weeks. We had interviews. We had interviews. We've been doing a lot We've of interviews. We've been busy. We, we went on vacation. Busy. Yes, we did. We're back, though. We're back. We're back. Uh, a few hot items I want to mention, Chris, before we jump into tonight's episode. We will be at Armory DE next Thursday, November 17th at 6 p.m. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm yes. very excited about that. I've we're going never to done do anything in Deep a, before like this. Yes. We're going to do a fun show. We're going to pair our stories with the drinks on their list, on their cocktail list. That's going to be interesting. <laughs> it's going to be so I know good. a couple we could do. I, I yes. was looking at some of the other ones. It's going to be a... It's going to be a real it's treat. It's perfect. It's perfect. So come out, see us in Bellum next Thursday, November 17th. December 3rd, Chris, we will be in Freeona, Texas at the Farm Wife Kitchen. Yes. Very excited for that as well. Tickets go on sale, I think, very soon. Um, follow, follow, Make sure you're following us. Follow the Farm Wife Kitchen. Uh, she's going to put the tickets on sale. But we are going, this is in West Texas. I know. So our West Texas listeners, um, we know who you are. So come on out, see us. That's an. That's going to be. Do you think we'll see snow? I don't know. I was thinking. I mean, that time of year, you never know <laughs> what really you'll see out there. So. But that's going to be a cool little road trip, though. Yeah, it's going to be cool. So um, December third, we will be out there. Well, Chris, I'm excited to tell our friends about Chateau Wright. We are featuring their wine. I was excited to drink it. To drink it, yeah. <laughs> it was really good. So we're going to feature them, Chris, on the next four episodes. You're yes. going to be pairing a dish. With the wines. As we did for this episode. Yes. And best of all, our listeners will be getting discount codes to shop at Chateau Wright. That's real cool. Yeah. So cool. So be listening at the wine recess. Uh, Chris will share more details then. Yes. All right. Um, Tonight we are sipping on Miter Red by Chateau Wright. Chris, again, we will share details about this wine, which is a 100% Tempranillo um, and we'll talk about what dish you paired with it during the wine recess. We All right, babe. We can, we can say ahead of that, though, it was really good. <laughs> what did you say? Before the recess, we enjoyed it. Oh. And we'll delve more into that enjoyment. Yes, we will. Um, or have been enjoying it. Have been enjoying it. <laughs> I love the bottle, too. Yeah. The, I, I really like their labels, too. Um, all right, honey, are you ready to jump into this week's case? Yes, let's jump in. There's a lot to talk about. All right, friends, it's time to sip some wine and talk some crime. As always, hun, we want to give them out there a few facts about the city our crime takes place in. So let's learn a little more about Lubbock, shall we? We shall. Buddy Holly, who I left out last time, I did Lubbock facts and you were pointed that I out. Called, I called you out Called on me that. out on that. Yep. Buddy Holly, who died in a plane crash along with Richie Valens, was from the city of Lubbock. Yes, the day the music died. The day the music died. That was so sad. I know. You remember that? I were, do remember were, that. Were you at school when the plane went down in 1959? I, oh, wait. No, I was not. 
I'm sorry. I, remember, I was thinking I of the right movie. Where I was, I I was thinking right of the movie yeah, or where yeah. I saw oh, yeah. the movie. That's right. I, <laughs> I remember the day I saw the movie, the, the day of the plane crash and the day that yeah, it happened. Yeah, I yes, just know it was right. sad I remember from where I movie. was when I saw the movie, yes. <laughs> I was at the movie theater. Number two. In like 1984, I think it was. So. I was only seven. The world's largest area of cotton growth takes place in this region of Lubbock. Um, there is a lot of cotton in Lubbock, hun. In fact, remember the owner of English Newsom said he is a cotton farmer first and foremost. I know. We we uh, saw cotton everywhere <laughs> driving <laughs> we back. We were remember? like amazed with yeah, it. It was, it it was, was. I never seen anything like that. Yeah, we were kind of mildly obsessed I just, I've, I've been there before, too, and I don't recall, I guess, but I was Same. much younger and... You know, college age. So I yeah. called a party. I we were like, I didn't adults. care about cotton. Yeah. We were. So it happens to get old and you start looking at cotton. You start observing just the start, na- start, natural. Start observing life. <laughs> You're just grateful for one yeah. more day. Number three. Like, she'd be like Ferris Bueller sometimes. She's got to slow down. Um, yeah. They have a badass winery in Lubbock. We just they, said they it. Do. English Newsome Cellars. So go visit our friends and tell them um, your friends at Texas Wine and True Crime sent you. Yeah, That's an awesome place. Yeah, it's a beautiful um, beautiful, beautiful winery. God, it's gorgeous. All inside. I mean, just very nice inside, very cozy and just. They gave us a tour of the back. It was really cool. I like kind of little, uh, called a grotto or whatever, whatever had the little fountain outside where yeah. we were sitting. And, and, um, yeah, that was yeah, an awesome fun. space. Yeah. We'll be back soon. We need to go visit. All right. On August 24th, 1975, 18-year-old Deborah Sue Williamson turned off the television, grabbed her keys, her purse, and headed out the door. Moments later, Williamson is viciously attacked outside of her home. She is stabbed to death. Four hours later, her lifeless body is found by her husband. Who is responsible for the murder of Debbie Sue Williamson? All right, Chris, this case has gone unsolved for the last 47 years. It's a long time. Now, even though it's unsolved, the Lubbock PD, the people of Lubbock, they want this case solved to give this family some answers since it's been so very long. Uh, I do want to mention um, that a book about Deborah's case was released by author George Jared and his partner that works on these cases with him, Jennifer Bucoltz. Now, Chris, the book is called Silent Silhouette. Now, I highly recommend this book if you want to form your own conclusions about this case. Mm-hmm. This is why they wrote this book, um, is to come up with your own conclusions about what you think happened to Debbie. Um, tonight, I am going to start, um, since I said this is two parts, we're going to go into two parts this time. I'm going to start with the crime scene. We're going to talk a little bit about the suspects, and then we're going to talk about what Debbie was doing before her death. I think that's probably enough for part one. Yes. And then we'll, we'll go into um, part two next week. All right. So, Chris, I happen to agree with a lot of the facts and the theories in this book. Um, this book was released in 2022, so this year. Um, I'm going to share just the facts of what the public knows, police report information, Um, some interviews that took place and also what George and Jennifer uncover as they started their own research into Deborah's case. Okay. Um, Chris, I might have to see if they maybe will come on the show. Um, They wrote this book. They've talked about this book. They've been on other podcasts about um, this case and an email. Yeah. I mean, they've done there. There was another um, case that um, they were involved in and you know, they're, they're, 
I think they're really good at what they do. So I um Deborah Sue Williamson, also known as Debbie, she was 18 years old at the time of her death. So Chris, she had only been married to Doug Williamson for about 10 weeks. Not very long. Not very long at all. So a newlywed that fell in love quickly. Chris, they dated for about eight or nine months before they decided to get married. I mean, this is the 1970s. Mm-hmm. My parents were married in the 70s. Um, so I don't think it was really untypical to get married at such a young age, 18. I think that was pretty, that seemed pretty it's still normal. still pretty young. It is pretty young, but I feel like that was kind of what they did back then. I don't know. I feel like they were just, they got married a lot younger then. But didn't date very long. Um, it happens even today. People just go out and get married after a few months. Mm-hmm. So they decide they're going to get married. Um, so, Chris, we always talk about... What happens to our victim the first 24 to 48 hours of their life um, before their life is taken? What were they doing the 24 to 48 hours prior to their death? Um, When you look at this, sometimes it gives you clues into these types of cases. I mean, this has gone 47 years, right? 47 years Mm -hmm. without any answers. Um, And I think in Debbie's case, the 24-hour window is exactly where the police should have been focusing, yes. should should focus, I feel like, going, going forward in this investigation. Um, I'm going to throw this out there and say that I have no doubt in my mind this was a planned attack. Mm-hmm. Um, based on, on what I know now, I think this case could have been solved so much sooner than this if they would have really just taken a closer look into the close friends of Debbie and Doug And most importantly, think about the motive. You know, who wanted an 18-year-old girl dead? How old was he? Um, The husband was 20? 20? I don't know. Mm. I need to look at his age. I'm not exactly sure how um, how old Doug was, but I don't think he was much older than her. And But the motive, who would have benefited from her death? Who would want Debbie dead, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So let's talk about the hours leading up to Deborah's murder. So around 7 p.m., she goes and has dinner with her parents and sister at the Pizza Inn where where her husband, Doug, was a manager. So he's the manager of the Pizza Inn. That's about five minutes from their house. I miss Pizza Inn. I know. And there was actually one really close to there. So there was one. Do you remember they used to be everywhere? Used to be one on Forest Lane. Yes, there did. Back in the day. Um, So Doug is working that night and his new wife and family come in to eat. So let's think about this, right? Let's just, I like to picture when we talk about these cases, you're Doug, you're working at Pizza Inn, your new wife and and the parents and the sister come in to have dinner, right? It's Mm -hmm. exciting. You just got married. Um, so they're there that night. They eat. Debbie is dropped off by her parents and sister um, between 8.15 and 8.30. Okay? Yep. So now we know she is not killed before 9 because Doug speaks to her on the phone. And she is going to be heading back up there later to meet him and drop off some money to him. Now. This money is for Doug, and it's to pay back the register before the money is counted at the end of the night. Oh. 
Well, what we know now is he borrowed the money to buy something that week and he needed to pay it back by the end of the week, which is why Debbie was going to bring the money up there. Now, I think about that now and we think, oh, he's stealing from the restaurant. But from from what I heard in interviews with um, with this situation and with Doug with this money, apparently it wasn't necessarily frowned upon as long as it was paid back. By the owner? By the owner, by the manager, by, yeah. Okay. Well, that's different. Yeah. So, so nothing illegal, but Debbie had that money. Debbie was going back up there that night to bring the money. Now, I, I believe it was around like $150, $160, which would be a lot of money now, nowadays. Yeah. So that's what, um, that's what she had. And we know that money was in her purse. And then um, we'll talk about what happens when when she leaves her home. All right. So um, we mentioned motive. This is so now she has dinner. She's home. Um, the money she's headed back up there. But Chris, she doesn't show up. Now, he starts to get a little concerned that she hasn't come back to the restaurant. Um and he starts calling people. He starts calling people and he's saying, have you talked to Debbie? She was supposed to come up here. I haven't seen her. No, we haven't. No, we haven't. Nobody has seen her. So then by 1 a.m., he can finally leave the pizza inn to go and check on his wife. So he pulls up to their house and he starts walking up to, to his house and he notices, he looks down and he he sees what he thinks and knows as Debbie. So... He sees her body. He jumps back in his car. He drives back to the Pizza Inn, and he calls 911 from the Pizza Inn. Why not the house? Um, from what I understand, he possibly thought the intruder could still be there. I mean, this is a very rural, pitch black area. I mean, I'd, I would not go in the house. I would definitely jump back in my car and drive away. You, no doubt you about leave it. leave me on the ground? I think he knew she was dead. I don't think he believed she was alive. I think if he thought she was was alive, and he did say he touched her, you know, he checked for a pulse, um, and and she was deceased by the by the time he he arrived. So he goes back to the pizza inn, but the, the employees that are there, um, he he tells them, you know, I found Debbie, and you know that you know where he where he finds her. Um, now there are a couple people that I'm going to talk about that are on the suspect list that have just been named persons of interest. They've been, um, some of them have been polygraphed. I mean, you know, some of these people have been questioned extensively and then re and then re-questioned later on. So after he, he finds her, Paul and Lex, two guys, these two guys are at the pizza inn. They drive to Doug's house. While he's still on the phone with 911, he's calling 911, telling them that he found his wife, that he needs police to his home. And these two guys leave and go to his house. Now, Doug is not far behind them. He jumps in his car and drives directly to his house after he hangs up with 911. So it's just a few minutes before he's right behind them. But the one big question that I still have is, what you know why why would these two take it upon themselves to go over 
to Doug's house before the police even arrive to check on Debbie. To make sure she's dead? I mean, you're a guy. I, can you answer that? You have a man who's very distraught who runs back so into a maybe restaurant. Maybe they went back to go check on her and just verify that uh, she was dead. <coughs> Sorry, I'm choking on water. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think... Um, water, water. Because you said he checked a pulse, but I mean, I, I don't Excuse know. I mean, me. like, I, I th- honestly, I think yes. it's kind of strange that he left her... And didn't I mean I don't know I I, would, I mean I know I we can never you. I wouldn't drive at the house and see you lay on the front and then. <laughs> but le- remember, this leave. is before cell phones, right? So he doesn't have a cell phone. He's got to go in the house to get the phone. Well, you go get a stick and deal with it. I don't know. So, but I mean, like I said, we don't know. It's nineteen seventy-five. It's rural. He probably has a shotgun hanging in his rear rear window and in his pickup truck. So who knows. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. know. But anyways, we can press on. So he he drives back. Um, Paul and Lex drive. They they find Debbie. Um, now, Chris, Debbie is found with 17 stab wounds. Most of these wounds were to the back. And there are two wounds that are kind of described as jagged. Mm-hmm. I guess that would make sense using. Um, so a jagged wound. Um, now she had a wound that it was sitting basically in the armpit. So really the only logical explanation for the stab wound, the one or two stab wounds that were jagged was if she's moving. I mean, I don't know you, you, you kind of are a semi expert in knives. So I trust your judgment on this. Ah, that's a new, uh, <laughs> a newfound. Um, I'm always giving, I always making uh, you the expert of everything. Yeah, I no. know. Okay. Uh, I do like knives. Yes. So, so I have a knife in my hand, right? Sure. And I go to forward stab. Let's just say I'm forward I'm, stabbing. I'm watching your forward stab right at me right, right now. At so you. It's going to be very effective <laughs> since I am an expert. Okay. So if I come in and I, let's say I'm, I have you up like against a wall or a door or I'm cornering you and I go to, or even if I lunge at you and I, and I get you, right? I've now stabbed you. If you try to run off, isn't that knife going to create some sort of jagged cut in the skin rather than a straight in and out? I don't know. I guess it depends on if the attacker withdrew it instantly or left it sitting in the person. Like a quick stabbing back or, you know. Well, if it's jagged, wouldn't it have to still be in there if the person runs off? I guess so. I mean, I would think that would be the only way. Because if you're... I'm just saying if you were holding a knife at me like you just were, you wouldn't have me up against the wall or this (laughs) time. Well, I don't. I mean, I've never stabbed anything before, uh, except you know. Well, I'll I'll show you some, something some since I'm an or expert. Something. Okay, <laughs> do some stab training. So, so the the wound is jagged. Um, I I I seem to think that she she possibly takes off running after that first hit because of where it is, which is in the armpit, which means somebody is probably facing her when she gets that wound. Um, and then the other ones are all mostly in the back. So she is the attack, I believe, starts close to um, that back door that was left open um, that she that she was coming out of. And she takes off running because there is a large amount of blood found in the carport next to her car. So most of the wounds are in the back. 
they probably catch her, pull her to the ground, and sit on her. Because the wounds to the back, Chris, are not jagged. They're kind of just straight in and out. Mm -hmm. So to me, that would mean somebody's probably not moving. Pinned down, possibly, on her stomach. And then it said that she is pulled. They believe she was pulled back out of the carport, back into where there's more more like lighting um, by the home. Now, whether... Whether that was because they wanted to see her face or they wanted them or they wanted her to see their face or they wanted to see what they had done to her. I don't really know. I I don't know the reason to bring the victim back into the light. I mean, if you're trying to hide, then the dark would be where you'd want to be. But yes, but I don't I don't know. I kind of there was some reason that the perpetrator pulls her back towards the back door. Um, her shirt had been pulled up and her pants had been pulled down, but it was confirmed she was not sexually assaulted. Uh, Debbie's body was found basically in between the carport and where she would have um, exited the home. Um, where her body was found was basically in front of the back steps under um, like right by the back door. Um did the killer hide in the darkness and ambush Debbie? Was the killer in the home before the murder? Was there a confrontation outside of the home that led to Debbie's murder? Truth is, we really don't know. Yeah, I mean, this is um, it's just strange. It's Especially a with, strange um, yeah, case. With no, uh, no sexual assault or anything, and just, I don't know. But, but, but setting it up as a sexual crime, right? And robbery. The purse is taken. We know her purse has never been found. The purse is taken. Inside of that purse was actually rolls of her wedding pictures. So there was, the rumor was there was a wedding album missing, but it wasn't. It was actually the proofs of these wedding pictures um, that were in the purse. They just think that everything that in the, and the money, right? So, Robbery, of course, is what they're going to think, which is what we're going to talk about with one of the suspects, um, the robbery motive. Um, but it's strange. You're, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere in Lubbock in the nighttime, and you're just attacked when you leave your house, if we're to believe, since we know that since it was outside and nothing was seen inside. Yeah, there's not as many random murders in Lubbock. No. Um, all right, honey. Well, now it's already time for a wine recess. Okay. Okay. So we are going to talk about Chateau Wright. We are drinking Miter Red 2019, which is a 100% Tempranillo. Honey, what did you pair with this wine? Well, you know, I just, before we jump into that, I think it's kind of neat that this has grown down the Davis Mountains, kind of close to Big Bend. And yes. Know, yes. So that's kind of a cool, I'd love to go uh, visit this place. Oh, I love that, babe. Yeah, okay, yeah. on that. the list. I love that part of Texas. Cool. Very cool. So what did I pair it with? I pair, I wanted to go with something a little spicy. Okay. And we had a nice little cold snap kind of hit us here in yes, Dallas, we did. Texas. It's chilly. Um, so um, just, uh, it, it is chilly. And so <laughs> I made some. Boom, I, boom. <laughs> so I made, uh, I made some chili. So, yes, I made a nice little three-alarm, very spicy, hot uh, three-alarm chili. 
made it kind of Tex-Mex style. I put a big old lump of uh, Spanish rice in, in the middle. And um, it was delicious. I love chili. And I was like, it's so cold. It was like the first night that it got really cold here and the the heater was about to go on. I'm like, okay, we got to have chili. He's like, oh yeah, perfect. Um, so yeah, it started to get cold, but then it got colder. Like it didn't stay. It warmed up and then it got cold again. I made but. some roasted sweet potatoes too, for just for the hell of it. <sighs> Those were so With good some hot too. honey on them. So them were pretty good. Okay, well, nice what you paired was the Chateau Wright, which is the classic Texas Tempranillo with notes of black cherry, plum, tobacco, vanilla, and leather. Aged 20 months, Chris, in Hungarian oak barrels. Yeah, we're going to have to go check out this place. Uh, James Smith is going to come on the show. He is the winemaker over at Chateau Wright. Very cool. Um, so, yeah, he is really cool, really interesting. So go to their website, read their story about the Blue Mountain Vineyard. Chris, that's where um, they are located right next to there. The owner, I'm guessing, is that, the, is that Blue Mountain on their label? Is uh, that the Blue Mountain? That looks like the Blue Mountain. Okay. So, the, like Chris said, so they are located. Yeah. <laughs> they are located in Fort Davis, Texas. Um, so the owner, Dr. Wright, Chris, in 2011, purchased 40 acres um, only a half mile away from the old Blue Mountain Vineyard. In the spring of 2012, 17,000 vines were planted using originally designed machinery and underground irrigation, such as an overhauled Kubota tractor with hot pink rear wheel, wheel rims that can flip to make the tractor narrow, thus Blue Mountain Trail Vineyard was born. As that's a very technical description of their vineyard. Yes, down to the Kubota tractor. <laughs> yes, I'm suspecting I love it. that you copy and pasted this off of their website. I did. Yes, um, because the, well, the reason I'm telling them to go read their I don't story. Blame you. I'm just saying. Yeah, their story okay. is like um, a lot. And they a have lot. Hot pink rear wheel. I could have had a whole episode on their backstory. It's really cool. They need, that was a very small snippet. I just wanted to tell them how they got the vineyard. But I this is only a very teeny tiny snippet of their cool backstory. So go check them out. Um, and guess what? You get 10% off your order just for listening to our show. All you need to do is put wine and crime. That's right. That's uh, a pretty cool deal. At checkout, use the code wine and crime. Um, we have other wines from Chateau Wright to share this month, so more to come. Oh, and Patreon members, exclusive for you is an additional code. So be on the lookout for that in your Patreon messages. Uh, we appreciate everyone's support, though, so much. Um, all right, honey, are you ready to jump back into this case? Let's delve back in. All right, here we go. Now. When uh, we know she was attacked outside of the home, ran towards the car, was taken down by the car since a significant amount of blood was found um, in the carport, but her her body was found away from all of the, the large blood. Um, it is believed, like I mentioned, that she was dragged out from under the carport back to just a more lit area near the back door where she was found. Now, um, Debbie's purse, like I mentioned, was taken, never found. The knife used to kill Debbie has also never been recovered. Um, Chris, there was a broken kitchen window, but after looking at this picture and looking at the window, to me, it's clear that this would not have been used to to gain entry into the home, mm -hmm. right? Probably just a staged, uh, yeah, you know, window. Say. Somebody just probably broke it 
to yeah. give that effect. Yep. Um, it just doesn't make any sense for someone to try to go through that window when they know Debbie isn't asleep. You know, if she's awake, she's going to hear that and react and probably call the police or, you know, grab a weapon herself. So, and we also know that the back door was actually found um, wide open. Now, of course, the first person on the radar is the husband. But Chris, Doug Williamson's alibi is rock solid. Besides leaving at 1 a.m. to check on his wife, a girl working at the Pizza Inn said Doug never left. She said they were crazy busy and he was in the back cooking most of the night. So pretty solid alibi all these years. Clearly not him. Uh, Yes. Um, he did take a poly. We'll talk, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, in part two, we're going to talk about all the polygraphs that were taken. Um, but yeah, his, his alibi was pretty rock solid. The second person I want to mention is Paul Neal. So Paul was a mutual friend of Debbie's and Doug's. He knew Doug growing up. Now, Chris, Doug's parents owned the house, um, that Doug and Debbie lived in. So after they got married, they took over this house and Doug's parents moved to a different house. So they, they basically give, gave the kids this house. Um, now, Paul knew this house. He knew, the, he knew their schedules. He knew about the money. He just gave it to them? Oh, well, his, their parents, I mean, they like gifted it to them. He, they probably took the payments over, right? But the yeah. parents just Never moved. Know Maybe they did. Yeah. Just give it, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's their kid. It's his kid, their kid, right? So if they have the means to do that, then then that's cool. Um, so yeah, they lived in um, the parents' house. So Doug grew up in this house. So all these kids that grew up with Doug know this house. They've yeah. been in this house, right? Um, so Paul knows where Doug and where Debbie both are. Um, like I mentioned, he knew about the money. And most importantly, he worked with Doug at the Pizza Inn. Now, in fact, Chris, he got this job from Doug. But here's one thing that is very important, in my opinion, in this case, and that is Paul had feelings for Debbie. Mm-hmm. They never had an intimate relationship, but rumor has it when Doug and Debbie got together, he was heartbroken. Now, think about that. Heartbroken. Yet you've never really dated her and you've never been intimate with this woman. So Doug and Debbie meet. Doug's best friend, Paul. Who said he was heartbroken? Just family and friends? Uh, yeah, and he he was, it got so bad, he wasn't even invited to the wedding. Oh. Now, I mean, think about that. One of your best friends is now going to marry the girl that you've had a big crush on for a while. Yeah. I don't know. I could see where they would point at him, too. Um, so that's heartbroken Paul. We'll get back to him. Another suspect who the police were certain committed this crime who was on the top of their list, Chris, was Debbie's brother, Ricky. Now, Ricky also had an alibi. He was with a group of people the night his sister was killed. But, Chris, he had money problems. He had some drug problems. Um, And since that money was missing and the purse was gone, police believed he took it because he needed it. He had asked Debbie in the past to borrow money. And they, Chris, this guy sat at the very top of the suspect list. The purse is gone. The money's gone. Uh, Brown brother, though. Yeah. And you know what, though? To me, I mean, do you see um, 
I, I have a problem with the whole like shirt situation and pants situation because to me that's a sexual crime and that's your brother. You, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I was going to say it to you. I, you don't often see a lot of sibling murders. It happens, of course, but usually that's yeah. The usually family, it's, family members there to kill their parents or something like that. I don't know. I can't see a. Um, I don't, and what was the motive? I yeah. mean, you know, the money in her purse. I mean, there was really no other. I mean, they they probably argued just like brothers and sisters do. But did they? Did was it enough to really kill her? So, but. Like I said, he was um, sitting right at the top of the list. By the way, this is unsolved. So I would say that all of these people are probably still sitting on the top of that list. Um, but there's probably just, you know, there just hasn't been enough to make to make that arrest. Um, another suspect I want to mention is Lex. Lex was at the Pizza Inn and he drove with Paul to find Debbie's body while Doug was dialing 911, like I mentioned earlier. Lex was not a verified employee of Pizza Inn, but rumor has it, Chris, he would work for food. So he would help out. This was for, like, inventory. They were going to come back um, this night, the night of Debbie's murder. Um, Paul, Lex, Doug, they were all at the Pizza Inn. He worked for pizza? He basically worked for pizza. Mm. Um, but he was just not a verified actual employee um, of Pizza Inn. Now, the exact time Lex showed up to help with inventory the night Debbie was killed has never been confirmed. It hasn't been confirmed because some places it says 1030, somewhere else it says midnight. Um, so nobody really knows what time this guy shows up at Pizza in that night. Um, now, Lex was seen at the lake with Paul, Debbie, and Doug the day before Debbie was murdered. Now, I'll, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, the lake. Chris, but there was another suspect on that list, and this is a woman named Susan. Susan dated Doug before he met and married Debbie. She was a person of interest because her and Doug were in love at one point, but he ends up meeting Debbie and falling out of love with Susan. So she's on the suspect list because, you know, jealousy sometimes leads to murder. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is Mike. Mike was a manager at another nearby pizza inn. He knew Doug and Debbie and Paul. But after Debbie's death, he acted like he barely knew her, Chris. So he had previously worked with her at a restaurant. Yeah. He went to her wedding. He worked for the same company as her husband, Pizza Inn. So when she was killed and he was talking to police... He basically said he didn't know Debbie very well. Yeah, that's a little weird. So why lie? Why lie unless you have something to hide? That's very strange. Or just nervous. I guess, right? Nervous? Of course. No, you say you don't know her very well, so then they won't ask you too many questions about it? I would think if somebody called you randomly in for as a suspect for any murder... And even if you, but then I would lie. I would know I was lying to them. I don't know, right? I'm just saying, I would think I'd be more afraid of like telling them that if it wasn't true. And then they realize, but that's not saying you don't know her. It just says you don't know her very well. I guess that could mean lots of things to different people. Exactly. Okay. So, okay, I get that. I mean, you know. All right. Well, Mike is on that list too. Uh, Chris, Debbie's case was featured on the next Netflix series, <clears throat> The Confession Killer. Now, this was Henry Lee Lucas. 
Now, we know Henry Lee Lucas, um, but this guy, he confesses to killing Debbie. Now, this confession is actually featured on this show. Um, now, frankly, you can't believe anything Henry Lee Lucas says. There, So there's been a handful of confirmed deaths by him. But Chris, he has falsely confessed hundreds of murders um, that he just didn't commit. That just law enforcement knows he could not have done. Well, it, it probably just gets him out of being in a cell. Yeah. And he was, he eventually like redacted his confession about killing Debbie. So then he was com- just dismissed as a suspect. Like they don't think he had anything to do with it, but um, it was featured on the confession killer. Um, so for this episode, I am stopping there on the suspect list. In part two, I will bring in other characters that have shown up in this case. Um, but Chris, I want to talk now about the way Debbie was killed. So she is stabbed 17 times and most of those wounds were in the back. Now, most of the time when you see that kind of wound in the back, someone is running and someone catches you. You're not, if you're having a confrontation, you're not arguing them with the person's back turned typically, right? Yeah, or they, they as I say, kind of sprung on them and then they initially turned around and then... Yeah, but I believe there's a forward motion going, yeah. right, with that, um, whether they jumped out or chasing. Um, and, and I mentioned the jagged wound um, near the armpit and then, um, personally, I think she probably tried to run for it or go towards the car. And then um, she's brought down. She is stabbed in the back. And then she is brought back near um, the door where she's ultimately found. Now, Chris, stabbing someone up close like this to me screams personal. You are up close to the victim. If you're there to wa- rob her, why the overkill? Why 17 times? Why drag her back into the more lit area? Thieves want to get in and out. They're not going to go to a more lit area and be exposed. Why not just stab, take the purse, what you're there for, and run, right? So there's a little bit of overkill with the 17 um, stab wounds. Now, earlier that evening after Debbie's family had dinner, Chris, this this is interesting. This is where things get a little interesting to me. Now, after Debbie's family had dinner, Paul Neal asked his friend and manager, Doug, if he can use his shower since he has a date at 10 o'clock and Doug's home is closer to where his date lives. That's strange, but go on. All right. Now, it is still not known 47 years later whether or not Paul showered at Doug's that night. If he did... He would have been alone with Debbie. Debbie would have led him into the house. He said like a spare set of clothes as well. So this is interesting. One of the authors of the book brings this up. He says this is the 1970s. People brought changes of clothes in their car a lot. I remember being in the 80s and doing that exact same thing. So people just sort of, I mean, he's right though. You you kind of always had a spare set of clothes whether you were changing after work or no. you would go to a friend's house, I've I did. I've never heard of such a thing. I have. I a have. spare set of clothes? Yeah, just like a bag of, like, with extra clothes. Mm-hmm. Just in case? Well, they went to the lake the day before. They probably tr- had changes of clothes to get out of their swimsuits. I think, yes. I think the, I think he had some some clothes. So, 
I'm fairly certain if I had a change of clothes <laughs> I carried around in my my trunk in my car, you'd be questioning. <laughs> just saying. Okay. Well, like, where the hell do you need extra clothes? I'm from, just dude? I'm just saying. How that... are you going to get soiled that you need to change? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Exactly. Well, he had he asked if he could shower there. Okay. Now this gotcha, I want. Gotcha. Are you following me? This is real important gotcha, stuff. Gotcha. All right. He is at the restaurant when Debbie's family is having dinner. Debbie, her and her family leave. He turns around and then asks Doug, her husband, if he can leave early, go shower and be at his date by 10 p.m. because that is the time that his date is expecting him. Okay. Um, Now he calls his wife and he, you know, kind of asks her if it's okay for him to come and shower. Now, nobody really knows what Debbie said to him on the phone. Um, but think about think about this. This guy was not invited to your wedding because he was kind of obsessed with you and it became a problem. So and now you're home alone and he wants to come over and shower. Why would he even let him? Well, because he had showered in this house before. He grew up with this guy. This guy was a a really good friend of his. And he basically, I don't think he even really cared that Paul could go over and shower. I think if he did care, he would have never even called Debbie. I think he was just kind of letting Debbie know that he might come by there. Do you know what I mean? I I think if it was an issue, he would have never even talked to his wife about it. But it is confirmed that he he did speak to her. Um, but I mean, that's what I'm saying. It was, he was, he was supposedly so distraught over Doug and Debbie getting married that he wasn't invited to the wedding. And then he returns Chris to town two weeks before Debbie is killed. Um, yeah, like I mentioned, if I was Debbie and you were Doug, would you want this guy showering at the house with me by myself there? Not at all. That's what I'm saying. So something, yeah, something a little strange there. All right. And um, one thing that I can't get past is um, this, they're friends for a long time, right? This guy grew up in Doug's house. He would come and visit his parents and, and stay in the house. But this guy leaves town for a few months. Then he comes back. So even though they grew up great friends, they probably had little to no contact with Paul after they got married for those few months, right? He's distraught. He doesn't go to the wedding. He leaves town. He comes back a few months later. And then, so how close and trusting do you think they would have been just after two weeks of him back? Do you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. Now he goes to the lake with him the day before. We're going to talk about this. And, but so it's like he, he, he's back and Doug gets him the job, and he's he's hanging around. But again, that's like kind of that's kind of like strange stuff, right? I'm sure her little feelers were up. I think Doug might have been a little more lax because he's known the guy his whole life. He probably thought he would never have to worry about anything, even you know, of of this. But um, I don't know. I I, I don't know. Uh, The day before Debbie was murdered, like I mentioned, she and Doug went to a nearby lake with friends for a fun Saturday afternoon. Some of those fellow friends are also, like I mentioned, on the suspect list. So here we go again. In this case, 
Um, looking at her interactions, the last 24 to 48 hours of her life matters here. Um, Doug left the lake early than um, earlier than everyone else because he had to go into work, Chris. De- Debbie was left there with Paul, um, possibly Mike, and other um, witnesses and people that were seen and known to be at the lake. But Chris, as we know, in reality, you are more likely to be murdered by someone you know rather than someone you don't know. Mm-hmm. So I think something either happened at the lake that set this course of events up, or it was a sexual crime where obsession and lust played a part and somebody wanted her to pay for something. Yeah, or maybe he tried something, attempted, and she resisted, and it led to that. Yes. Nothing was actually, she wasn't sexually assaulted. Nope, she was not. Maybe she punched him and... And... Or if... We know there wasn't any blood found in the home. I can't have you, no one can. Kind of deal. Right, but I mean that's something. That's what the strange thing is is in this case, um, and 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 the most of these suspects took polygraphs. In fact, um, in in part two, we're going to look at um, we're going to look at the polygraph tests. We're going to look at some more um, additional suspects that come into play. What their statements were forty seven years ago versus. Now these two investigators that I'm that I mentioned, um, George and uh, Jennifer, they are um, when they wrote this book. I mean they they talked to these people, and they had told some of these folks like it's not going to look good for you. This is not what you said to police, right? Or you don't remember this, or you don't remember that. Again, like not knowing very well. Um, this is kind of how he made it to the police that he just didn't know Debbie that well. Paul didn't know Debbie that well. Are you kidding? Like you were so distraught. You didn't get invited in the wedding and you don't know her very well. So again, you have someone kind of distancing themselves from her, which is highly suspicious, highly suspicious. All right. Well, um, Chris, that concludes um, part one. So we are going to jump into part two, talk about theories, talk about polygraph results, Um, Talk about additional suspects, motive, and where the case is today. Until next time, friends. Stay safe, have fun, and cheers next time. Cheers, everybody.